which in turn slows down manufacturing, slows down industry, slows down the construction uh, jobs. So they're looking at some situations over there very much like we are today in our nation. In other words, the, the economy of the whole world is getting very, very dicey. <clears throat> and people are talking about things such as a fiscal cliff. Uh, some of the tax cuts that were given under the Bush administration are scheduled to return to taxation on the 1st of January, which is not very far away from us. And unless something is done about that, uh, people's taxes will go up pretty dramatically. Payroll taxes will go up. All kinds of uh, spinoff will come as a result of that. Plus, we're printing trillions of dollars and going further in debt. And it's getting to the point people are trading outside the dollar instead of with it. And as they do that, no one is going to want the U.S. dollar, and anyone who buys it will want higher interest rates, which will drive us very much deeper into debt. So the whole world situation is getting to the point that there is a great collapse that not just we read in the book of Zephaniah, but which other people in the world are beginning to recognize and understand is inevitable. And it is almost upon us. How long it will take, I guess no one really knows, and perhaps God will control that. Let's look at it again for a moment in uh, Zephaniah, because as we read recently in Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, through that section about how there is a great conspiracy that is going on, we're not to fear it, but to fear God, but at the same time, it says then that the Assyrian leading a coalition of <coughs> nations against America will destroy this country. <coughs> and the destruction seems to be in terms of both uh, financial and then military. So these two things are something that coincide in time and in place. He addresses Israel here. Uh, it's interesting, I kind of went back through some of these scriptures yesterday. Uh, Nahum talks about how, well, Micah tells us to get out of the city, go dwell in the wilderness, get away from the middle of Babylon because the situation is getting worse and will come down. Then the book of Nahum uh, indicates that the Assyrian will be used uh, as the rod of God's anger, as it says there in Revelation, I mean in Isaiah, uh, I think it's 10 or 11 and be the ones who lead the charge to destroy us. And within Nahum, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep your solemn feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So, where he talks about national destruction here in the book of Nahum, with the Assyrian coming into our land, as Micah 5 tells us, he promises that the church, in all this, will find peace. And Isaiah 40 is quoted here uh, in verse 15 of the book of Nahum, because God is warning the church, he is getting a message out that there is good news coming, and you and I have examined all these prophecies over the last few years showing that in the face of all this destruction, God will protect those who will heed the warnings that he is giving. Now, perhaps it's taken a little longer than we might have anticipated, and therefore we can become a little discouraged or frustrated or impatient or whatever negative emotion might come along. But the Word of God is sure. These things will come to pass. It is a question of His time. And it appears the time is getting very short. But the sequence of these little books or chapters of a book is quite interesting in that He tells us to get out of the way, says He's going to bring the Assyrian, and that we can have peace, and that comes with the remnant of the church that will gather with the two witnesses 
to build the temple. That's in Haggai 2.9. It says that in this place will I bring peace. So the message now is that in spite of all that is coming, God is showing that he intends to bring peace to the faithful remnant of his church. Meanwhile, we, as it says in Isaiah 7, uh, look at the word, the law, the testimony of God, and it says that those people who will obey him are for signs and for wonders in the land of Israel. And it says there that we should wait for him and look for him. We read that recently at the beginning of the feast. And that is the mode we need to be in now. So Nahum talks about the destruction that is about to come. Then Habakkuk addresses this very issue, which I just talked about. And that is, how long, O Lord? How long is it going to be? It seems like the wicked prosper, and the harder we try, the more frustrating it gets. So I think Habakkuk uh, expresses a lot of the feelings that perhaps we go through, and have been going through, and maybe will go through for a short while yet, in the frustration of wanting these things to happen, reading about them, and how wonderful they are. It's, you know, it's kind of like talking about the millennium in a time of peace and prosperity and Christ ruling on the earth. But when in the world is it going to come? People have been reading those scriptures in Isaiah 11 and other places for many, many generations. Thousands of years, actually. And they hoped and looked and waited and wished that it might be during their day and that their children might grow up under those conditions. And it didn't happen. And now we find ourselves in the latter days, at the end of all these scriptures, when they are about to be fulfilled. And you know what? The waiting gets more difficult the nearer it comes. If it's a long way off, you can pace yourself better and be more patient. But if you notice that as maybe you were waiting for someone for an appointment... It's time for it to happen. Well, they haven't showed up. Well, they'll be here in a little bit. So you don't get too agitated. But then the clock keeps going, and now it's 15 minutes late. Then you begin to fuss and fume a little bit, because they're tying up your time and what you might want to do, and are not keeping their word. It's important to be on time. It's arrogant and presumptuous not to be, and selfish. But... As it grows later and later, we become more agitated and less able to handle it. In other words, impatience grows every minute you wait for something. So we think it is almost time. And therefore, that being the case, we tend to become incrementally more impatient as it actually is drawing nearer. The time is not longer now than it was, it's shorter. But our patience is thinner. That's the way, I guess, emotions work. Anyway, Habakkuk uh, does talk about the Chaldeans or the Assyrians again here, and how they will come. It talks about his mind will change and pass over in verse 11 of chapter 1, uh, similar to uh, what is said in Daniel. But... It's introduced, the Assyrian will come into our land in Micah, uh, in Nahum. It talks about that event occurring in Habakkuk. It is reiterated that it will happen, but when becomes the burning question in Habakkuk's mind. Chapter 2, he says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Eternal answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tablets or tables that he may run that reads it. In other words, when we get down to the point that it's talking about here, it's coming quickly. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. There is a set appointed time. 
Uh, God knows exactly when it is. We don't. And there is the source of our frustration and confusion. <coughs> but, you know, <coughs> it doesn't help a whole lot even to know exactly when an event is to occur. Because you still get more antsy thinking it'll just never get here. I, ju- I can hardly wait is a, an expression we use sometimes if we're looking forward to something we know is going to happen, and we may even know when it is scheduled, but still we find ourselves frustrated because we just can't wait until it happens, if it's something we truly want. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. It's not going to be a long wait once we enter this period that we are now in. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. If we're going on our pride, our vanity, our ego, our understanding, or whatever, uh, that doesn't work good. But the just shall live by his faith. Trusting God, believing God's Word, as it said in Isaiah 7, the law and the testimony of God is written in the Scriptures, is what we have. And we have to live in faith that these things will happen just as God says they will. So faith is something that should give us patience, it should give us trust, It should give us the capacity to wait for God. Because by nature as human beings, we tend to be impatient. We tend to want what we want now, and our society has certainly exacerbated that emotion by us expecting what we want when we want it. So a natural human desire to get what we want when we want it is made worse today by our society around us. But we have to abide quietly, waiting for God's word to come to pass. Because he said he stakes his whole reputation on these things actually happening. If they don't happen, he is not God. If we believe he is God, then we must believe his words, and we must in faith and patience wait for him. And as Isaiah 7 said again, not only wait for him, but look for him. So during the time that we are waiting in faith and patience, we are to be searching for God. It says in that same verse that he has hidden his face from us, and we have to seek him, to look for him. And that is a lot of the source of Habakkuk's concern here. Then he goes on down, verse 6, and says, How long? And to him that lays himself with with thick clay, verse 7, Shall they not rise up, and suddenly that shall bite you, and awake that shall vex you, and you shall be for booties to them? Because you have spoiled the many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil you. We have whipped up on and used our military against many, many nations over the last 50 years. And now they're going to gang up and come after us. It is very clear. Now, he prays when he understands that these things must happen. Well, let's go back for a moment to chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, is it not of the eternal of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? God has made conditions difficult, in other words. And life is not easy right now. There are many things we face, even natural things in life that are not easy to deal with, that normally speaking we could be able to do, have lifelong uh, professions, look forward to marriage and having children and seeing our grandchildren born and grow up, 
And we realize we're at the end of the age and some of these things have become very, very difficult. And even in the church years ago, it wasn't easy to find mates, as small as and as scattered as the church was in congregations around the world, but it was a whole lot easier than it is now where it has fractured and split and so many have quit and have differing views and viewpoints and beliefs and focuses, and now it has become almost impossible. So we're facing things that are in the very fire, in that sense, that are very difficult. This thing has to wrap up. It has to be done. It has to be finished. So the natural order of things has to change. Now, we've seen many times over the years, or read, where it says, as in the days of Noah were, people will be marrying and giving in marriage and just going through their normal life circumstance, and then it will hit them suddenly out of nowhere. So the world is trying to go on as if nothing is going to happen, as if the end of the age is not upon us. But it is. Now, we have been called to the front lines to give up the normal things of life that the world is still doing out there in order to prepare for the end of the age that is coming. Now, it might be easy to be a bit jealous of them or think, well, why can't we be doing what they're doing? I mean, even the the good part or the right part of marrying and giving in marriage and going on as if there's plenty of time. And yet this thing is going to come down on them so fast, and it will end all that. Whereas we have been given warning ahead of time and given opportunity to depart from the way that the world is going and to take, in that sense, emergency measures and emergency shelter so that when it comes, it will bypass us. Now, that is worth a great deal. It means that there may be several years in which we have villages to live in with God's protection, and some of those things that you are giving up for the moment, you may be able to do for a few years. Those answers may come. And for the church, at least the faithful remnant part of it, once God's protection comes, it will remain there until the return of Christ and our change and eternity is before us. So in that sense, it's a permanent protection if you make the last cut going from Jerusalem to the place of safety. God promises us peace and protection and plenty in a time when the world's world has ended. What a blessing that is. And he says the way this is going to end up in verse 14, it says, For the eternal, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. So that's how it's going to end up. He's talking about destruction of our nation here and how this is coming to an end. But there are glimpses in here that it will end up in peace and safety and eternal life. Then he gives his prayer in chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. O eternal, I have heard your speech and was afraid. He's heard about the destruction coming on our land. And it is scary. O Eternal, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the middle of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. He, many places, tells us that he is going to intervene and he is going to give us peace and safety and protection. But Habakkuk has just received this message and it is disturbing. So he enunciates a prayer and asks that God's work be revived in the middle of all this. And then it talks about how God is going to intervene and 
how the moon and sun will stand still, verse 11, and so on. And how he went forth for the salvation of his people in verse 13. So, when he heard all these things, verse 16, he said, My belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. He said, I'd rather die than go what's go through what's about to come. If I have to go through this, I'd rather rest in the grave. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Now, I find it very interesting in verse 17, the conclusion he comes to when he says, I'd rather die than face this. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. That reminds me of uh, Haggai 2, where it says uh, that God sent famine of the word. He sent scattering within the church, and there was no harvest. Uh, you know, the, the calling quit, conversion quit, basically, except for a few exceptions. And nothing was happening. And he said, from the time we started laying the foundation... Till now, nothing has happened. And then he says, from this day, speaking of the ninth month, the 24th day, will I bless you. And we've been looking at that date since, wondering when that would come to pass. But he said, all the remnant is coming, the temple will be built, but even knowing all this, from the time you knew about it and you started working toward it, nothing has happened. But I will bless you. And he cites exactly what Habakkuk is saying here. That the vine has not produced, the fig tree has not produced, or the pomegranate, and so on, there at the end of Haggai 2. So here we sit, in that circumstance today, where it hasn't happened yet, but it is imminent, it is not too far off. So, Nothing is being produced. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. In other words, the church is going to fall apart. It's prophesied. It's going to happen. No part of the church is immune from that. He says it will happen. Yet, in spite of all that is going on, all that will go on, he exhibits faith. In spite of all this lack of production, in spite of the continuing falling apart, yet I will rejoice in the eternal, I will joy in the God of my salvation. I think there is an awful lot of hope given by Habakkuk in this very statement. Because he's intimating that things are going to be very rough. There will be a time when it appears nothing is happening, that it's getting worse instead of better. And yet I will trust God because he promises that it will all be taken care of. Then he says in verse 19, The eternal God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So he says, God will take care of it and we will make music. We will have something to sing about, to shout about, to exult over in that God is going to see us through in spite of the way conditions are <clears throat> in the world and conditions in the church as well. God knows all this. He's told us about it ahead of time, and he will take care of it. Therefore, we can walk in faith, trusting God. Now, the book of Zephaniah continues, and God opens it by showing how he is going to, in verse 2, utterly consume all things from off the land, says the Eternal. And he'll cut Baal and false worship off. He goes through several verses here describing those things 
and how the day of the Lord is getting close in verse 7. And it shall come to pass, verse 8, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, when he begins to sacrifice men off the face of the earth through war and through his mighty hand where he begins to intervene in Satan's world and man's world. And he's bid his guest to war. There are other places to talk about, go ahead, gather yourselves together, come fight me. Let's see how this turns out. Then he goes on down, verse 10, It shall come to pass in that day, says the Eternal, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate, and an howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. Howl, you inhabitants of Maktesh. Maktesh was a uh, Wall Street, if you will, in the city of Jerusalem. It was the marketplace. So he says, you people who are doing business, howl. For all the merchant people are cut down, all they that bear silver are cut off. So those who are dealing in money, uh, who are in business, will be cut off. <clears throat> A great crashing from the hills. Isn't it always interesting that we talk about stock market crashes? Uh, we use the same word that God uses here in Zephaniah. It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, we're not talking about the city here necessarily. Jerusalem was the capital of, uh, of Judah and Levi. Uh, so the capital of Israel in that sense, and Samaria was the capital of the northern ten tribes. So he'll search it with candles and punish the men that are resting on their oars, is the better translation. But say in their hearts, the eternal will not do good, neither will he do evil. God isn't involved. This is our world. These, these are our finances. These are our businesses. Uh, we're doing just fine. Thank you. Therefore their goods shall become booty, or spoil, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. So be kicked out of their homes, and severe drought will come, and they will not be able to produce the fine things to eat and drink. This is coming. And booty means someone will haul off the spoil. The great day of the eternal is near. It is near and haste greatly, even the voice of the day of the eternal. The, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Verse 18, Neither their son nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the eternal's wrath, but the whole, even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. So, we have here several books, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, which talk about the Chaldean, the Assyrian, the coalition against America that is going to come against us. And then as Zephaniah is introduced, the additional thought that with this military takeover will come a financial crash. If you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 18, you find the same thing, that it talks about how God will destroy Babylon that's fallen and uh, how the merchants will sit in their ships and cry because their market is gone. And it also talks about a military takeover there. So you have both occurring at essentially the same time. Coming nearer and nearer as we speed toward it, we have to realize that our military defeat is also coming with it. It talks about in... One hour or one day, I think, there in Revelation 18. I guess we could turn back there for a moment and read it instead of just refer to it. We went through this in the Babylon series about what will happen here. It talks about the plagues that will come on Babylon uh, and how the nations have been made rich because of us or 
because of us as a, mar- a market. Verse 8, Therefore shall her, her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the eternal God who judges her. So that is a military destruction, along with, verse 11, the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. And it goes on to describe that. Verse 17, for in one hour so great riches has come to nothing, and all the shipmasters will cry, and so on and so forth. Then he tells us in verse 20, Rejoice over her, you heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So God is going to have his remnant people and his ministry right there on the scene when all this stuff comes down and the prophecies that God has issued will begin to happen. And a witness will be made against our nation and against all the nations of the earth when this comes. So we're looking at something that is becoming quite imminent. It isn't very far off. Then in chapter 2 of Zephaniah, he says, Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O nation, not desirable, is a better uh, translation. Why would God desire us? What are we? Nothing. And of ourselves, we can do nothing. Even Christ himself, as I was visiting with someone the other day, said, He could do nothing. His Father did it all. He even said so himself. He says, of myself I can do nothing. It's the Father in heaven that does it. As a human being, he could not heal. He could do nothing except the Father gave the power. Because at that point, he was a human being. And it took the spiritual power of God to do the miracles that he did. He can now, because he's sitting at his Father's right hand and has immortality and the power back. But of himself as a human, he did not have it. So we find ourselves so very limited. We're the sons of God as well and the brothers of Christ. But what power do we have? None except God at it. It's the only way he can come. He tells the rubble bell there in Zechariah 4, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Eternal. So even the two witnesses can do nothing except God give the power, the strength, through his spirit. Human beings are utterly futile. We are unable to accomplish anything. We are barely able to even hold our lives together, if you will. So we go to God in heaven for the strength, the help, the encouragement, the power to do the things we need to do. Of ourselves, we can do nothing. It is walking by the Spirit that counts. So we are not desirable, often by ourselves. But he has called us out of this world and given us his Spirit. And we did not walk in it in the way that he desired, and therefore he scattered us and turned his face from us. And now he says, wait for him and search or look for him and find him. And there are precious few who will do that. But here assembled is a group of people who is willing to do that. Willing to follow God's instruction and to seek and search and look for him and work at drawing near to him. That's what we have to do in a world that is about to be destroyed. And he is our only hope. Therefore, search hard. Gather yourselves before the decree bring forth. We have been given a head start. This decree of financial destruction has been made. We see it coming. God tells us to gather ourselves, to get together. Micah 4 tells us where. Before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the eternal come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. In other words, he says it's coming upon the nation. It's coming upon the world. I'm giving you advanced knowledge, I'm giving you opportunity 
to do something about it so that you can miss it. Wow. What great favor. What grace. What opportunity. God affords those who will listen, who have ears to hear. Seek ye the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have worked his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the eternal's anger. Now, he's promised his remnant will be hid, but he puts an if in here, and that is that there is individual responsibility. We all have to accept the challenge. We have to be accounted worthy. And that's what it says there in Matthew 24. Those who are accounted worthy to escape all these things. So God always puts a contingency upon us. It's not automatic. If it was automatic, he would have to do it for everyone. But he puts the warnings in here for anyone who wishes to read and to understand and to act in time. He talks about his people. How the Assyrian is coming. He talks about Ammon and Moab here in verse 8 of chapter 2. I think that is very interesting because where we have been called to come, uh, I think we are surrounded by Ammonites and Moabites. Uh, I think that the Mormons probably are mostly that. And if you compare that with with Isaiah 15 and 16, I think that story becomes fairly clear. Uh, they were the nephew of, of Abraham through Lot and the incestuous relationship with the daughters that Lot inadvertently had uh, lying there drunk. But it was incest in any case. And God said a Moabite or an Ammonite is not to enter into the house of the Eternal forever. So Lot has come back, I believe, through Ammon and Moab, into this area of the nation and have taken the land given to Abraham. And God will run them out. Verse 8, I have have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah even the breeding of nettles and salt pits. Interestingly, their capital is up around the Great Salt Lake. And a perpetual desolation. The residue, or the remnant of my people, shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. So if God has called us to this area, and it's the area that we are to possess, then those who are here are the ones who get repossessed. And he speaks of the Ammonites and the Moabites as being the ones. Moab, Utah is the only place on earth named Moab. And it says that we will have their spoil. I think it's Isaiah 15 or the beginning of 16. It talks about how uh, we will have the things that they have stored up. Who has stored more stuff up than the Mormons? I mean, their church policy is three years of storage uh, for living. Anyway, it goes on down and talks again about the Assyrian coming in in verse 13, and so on and so forth. So, again, Zephaniah brings it together. He talks about the financial crash, and then the Assyrian, the one who will lead the coalition against America, here in the same book, both arms of this destruction that is coming. Verse 11, And that day shall you not be ashamed for all your doings, wherein you have transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of you them that rejoice in your pride, and you shall no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. Oh, God is going to remove the proud. He's going to remove the egotistical, the vain. And what will we have left? I will leave also in the midst of you 
and afflicted and poor, or that can be easily translated humble and meek people, and they shall trust in the name of the Eternal. So God is going to take away everything else, and there's going to be a meek, humble people who will trust in God. As Habakkuk said, they shall live by their faith. Walk in faith. Christ said, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? It will be a very scarce commodity. Only a very few meek and humble people who have trusted God and obeyed God will have his protection, his help, and be protected and taken care of. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now there's still much around to be afraid of, but God has promised protection to be a wall of fire and a defense around his people during this period of time we're talking about. So then he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So those, that remnant of meek and humble people will have a lot to sing about, to rejoice in, and that God will take care of them. He says, The Eternal has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. This tells us in Zechariah 3 that our iniquity will be removed. He tells us in Isaiah 44 that our sins will be removed as a cloud in one day. He tells us in Isaiah 7 or 8 how he will remove our iniquity. So God will forgive those things where we have fallen short. And his grace and his mercy will take over and give us a lot to sing about. He's taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, even the Eternal, is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil any more. He says there in Zechariah 2, into the chapter, He will come and dwell with us. That's repeated several times in the Scriptures. It's repeated here. No more evil, no more hurt, no more harm. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not, and to Zion, let not your hands be slack. There will be work to do, and there will be protection of God from God, while that work is being done. The eternal your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of you, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. It will become a reproach in the eyes of the world if we obey God and keep his feasts. It'll be a burden that we bear. Someone was just offered a job and they were turned down because they had to keep the Sabbath. Those things happen. Our religion is, in that sense, a reproach to us. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict you, and I will save her that halts and gather her that was driven out. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, says the Eternal. So they're going to have a grudging respect and admiration for God's people, even though they will hate us, because God has intervened, and they are still in terrible circumstances. Now this of course, projects into the millennium as well, when at some point in time, those who are obeying God are going to be looked up to. But this happens first. Then the book of Haggai continues the story, showing that uh, it is at this juncture that he will call a remnant of the people together, that he will be with them, and they will build the temple during this period of time. <clears throat> and he talks about it being the time when in a short while, verse 22 of Haggai 2, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. And he will make Zerubbabel a signet in that time, uh, a banner, a flag of God. 
So it's not in the millennium yet. It is a temple to be built here in the end times by his remnant people that he will protect and be with. Now let's go back uh, where I first thought to go when I decided to go here today to Daniel 8. Because as we see the financial cliff getting closer and closer in front of us, As we move forward, there is also something else that is coming to pass, and they are preparing for war in the Middle East today, in spite of the fact, as I brought out at the very beginning, that the elections and a hurricane and various things can sort of take the front of the pages. Behind the scenes, there are many nations who are preparing to go into uh, Syria and Iran. The French, the Turks, uh, what did I read just yesterday? Uh, Two or three other nations have been holding meetings about this just over the last few days because they feel something must be done. Israel was in with them in those meetings as well. Even though Washington has been kind of spurning it because they want to keep it quiet until after the elections, whoever gets in. But at the same time, uh, our leading generals have been over in these meetings as well uh, with those nations that I just named. Here in chapter 8 of Daniel, it talks about a ram pushing uh, westward, northward, and southward, and nothing could stand before him. Uh, I think that is perhaps referring to the Muslim hordes who are growing in power and strength. And here is a he-goat from the west who came across, verse 5, the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. We have come to the point with our military that we fly all over the earth, spreading destruction wherever we wish without ever even having to put ground troops in unless we just want to. But by the power of the air only, we can destroy nations. And if we unleash nuclear, wow, we could destroy anything. No one else has this capacity on earth or is doing it as we are. The goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So he had a horn represents strength and power. So he had a big horn, a notable horn between his eyes or on his head. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which had seen standing before the river, and ran into him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was moved with anger against him, and smote the ram, and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. And then the he-goat waxed very great, and when he, and while, would be better translated, he was strong, The great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So I think we're talking of the power of the United States here, and they have their horn broken. And the country is divided into four notable sections, divided up. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great, It was more prominent, more powerful than the other three. Toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. Now, that would imply that this little horn uh, perhaps was in the west, and he showed his power toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. Perhaps he's in the northwest, I don't know. I think the pleasant land is in, or the promised land is in the southwest. So he pushed against those others, but it doesn't mention the west, wherever he's coming from, whether he's in it or whether he is in another area pushing in these directions. Anyway, it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Those would be people, the stars, uh, in this analogy. He magnified himself even to the prince of the hosts, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Uh, 
And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. So this one of the four leaders or horns of this nation is going to come against the church and be the one to set up the abomination of desolation. And I heard one saint, verse 13, speaking, and another saint saying to that certain saint which spoke, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And then you have the 2,300-day prophecy there, and it will be cleansed. But once this is divided up, one of these powers will become greater than the others and will be the ones who set up the abomination of desolation from which we are to flee, as shown in Matthew 24. Now, he didn't understand all this, Daniel. Uh, So, verse 17, end of the verse, it says, For at the time of the end shall be the vision. We're just skipping over this a little bit. So, this is an end-time prophecy. It's not about something that happened back in the four major empires that rule the earth. They're only used as a type of what shall be here in the end time. And then he had a deep sleep come upon him. And uh, verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make you know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. So this is at the very end of the age that this happens. And he explains, The ram which you saw having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, probably Iraq and Iran. The Iranians even call themselves Persians to this day. Uh, they don't, that's, that's what they refer to themselves continually. We've already destroyed Iraq, more or less, at least taken it over. And we are on the threshold of going into Iran, the other horn, the Medes and the Persians. The rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, how could we be the king of Grecia? Speaking from the Mede and Persian area of the Mesopotamian area of the cradle of civilization that occurred after the flood, I think, to the west would be the great power uh, that was referred to would be the Greek Empire. Now, we are further west, and I don't think by any stretch of the imagination could you say that this was referring to the little nation of Greece as we see it over there on the shores of the Mediterranean today. They're about to go under completely. They have no power whatsoever, and they're not going to break anybody's horn, okay? Think about Washington, D.C. The founding fathers saw fit, because of their political bias and because of their involvement with the Masons and other uh, occult organizations, used Greek and Roman architecture for building our capital. They used these ancient secret organizations as the basis for our government. Even our democratic government is patterned after the Greek and Roman senates and the Greek democracy. It isn't exactly the same, but Those are the first forms that we know in history of a democratic-type government. So I think that it fits together quite well that in the end time, this modern Babylon, which rules over modern Israel, or Jacob, is set up in a Greek fashion, Greek and Roman. Therefore, I think we can translate pretty easily into the end time, that this government and that little triangle of land in Washington, D.C., which is not part of the United States of America, it isn't a state, it is a completely separate entity. 
but it rules over us. So it is a Babylonian, Greek, Roman government that is ruling over Israel in this nation today. And they are the ones who are taking us to war against Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and whoever else you want to name. Is it the people of Kansas that are doing that? The people of Oregon? No. We want out of war, don't we, as a people, but basically. And yet those people in Washington, D.C. are causing and fomenting war around the world, and they want a world-ruling empire. That's what they're doing. They're doing it in spite of us, and they're doing it against us, and they're also going to turn it upon us, Jeremiah 50 and 51 show, that our leaders will give their hand and sell us out, whoever it might be. doesn't matter which one gets in, whoever it is, We'll do the final sellout. The last several have been doing it anyway, in increasing power and magnitude. So, this great uh, goat, who is patterned after Greece and Rome, will destroy the Medes and the Persians. Verse 22, now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, its horn will be broken, and four stand up after it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in power. We have great power in this country today, but once it is taken captive and divided up into four pieces, the power will be gone. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Probably referring to demonism and the occult here. Dark sentences. His power shall be mighty, and but not by his own power, Satan's power. And he shall destroy wonderfully or greatly and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the might, the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy shall he cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. But he shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And then he was told to shut the vision up until the latter days. So God has shown us in these prophecies we've looked at today, as well as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, that we are going to be taken into captivity, and it is coming very soon. We are in the midst of this prophecy in Daniel 8. Now I do believe in having gone in and destroyed the Medes. The Persians are in our sights. This war will probably happen within the next few months. Certainly, I would think, within a year, based on the power that Israel is putting behind it and how they're pushing Washington and how much France and Turkey and some of the others want this done, not only in Syria, but in Iran as well, because of the threat of nuclear arms. So it is something that is coming very soon. And at the same time, we see the financial cliff getting closer and closer. So these prophecies put together show two aspects of our destruction, militarily and financially. And they're getting very, very close. Now, God's people are called to come together and to prepare themselves by seeking God and being meek and humble, acquiring His protection and building His temple, both spiritual and I think physical as well. The physical will be defiled and even people of God who are not afforded that protection, this individual will come against and he will destroy the mighty and the holy people. Ninety percent of the church are going into the tribulation, and this little horn is going to make war against them. Brethren, we have been given an opportunity to escape these things and to do God's will and to do his work, to stand up and be his witnesses as he tells us in Isaiah 43 and 44 several times, that you who will obey me will be my witnesses that I am God. What a glorious and wonderful calling you and I have 
to stand up for God at a time when everyone else is going to stand up for Satan and the New World Order. It will be but a very, very few people who will do that. We've been given opportunity to know ahead of time. And I think we should be made aware and should realize and should be watching that this is coming very, very rapidly now. I don't know if Romney gets in exactly what the implications will be, but it could be very interesting since he is a Mormon. And we have these scriptures about the Moabites and the Ammonites and how they will come against God's people, but they will be destroyed. I don't know that he will get in. Obama may get back in, and I don't care to get into the politics of that and make any predictions. But I do know this. God will put the man in there that he sees fit to help finish bringing down our country. And it doesn't matter which party they are or anything else about them except that they will be used by Satan to destroy this country and God will be behind it because of our national sins. And it's sad to see, but it's coming. Our hearts have to go out to those people in the Northeast right now because of what they're suffering. And our hearts will have to go out to people who are going to begin to starve to death because they do not have enough food because of the famines and the topsy-turvy world that we have around us and the weather that is causing crops around the world to be diminished. And it's a sad time that is coming. So while we can feel for them and understand that God's kingdom will be here and then peace will break out all over the world, in the meantime... We have been given the knowledge, the information, that if we use it properly and wisely, can save us from all this destruction that is coming very shortly upon us, and we can do the work of God and be witnesses that He is God in these next few years that are coming up. What a wonderful privilege it is. And I wanted to go over some of those scriptures and let us see again and refresh our memories because it is almost upon us, and we need to be ready.